Psalm 100. We'll turn our hearts to the Lord. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth, and serve the, the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God, and it is he who made us. We are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name. For the Lord is good, and his steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, our God, we come to you now uh, to sing your praise, to give thanks, and to give glory that is due to your name alone, to bless your name. We ask for your help, O Lord. Confess that our hearts are weak, and we need the strength of your spirit to sing with right affection and proper joy for all that Christ has accomplished for us. We pray that you would turn our minds and hearts towards the wonderful work that you have done for us, Lord, in shepherding us towards yourself in giving your son that he might die in our place for sin. He might rescue us from the darkness of this world and from our own darkness and into the joy and hope and peace and righteousness of your kingdom. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to worship in that hope this evening. We ask for those who will partake in the service and minister to us, that you will lead them in worship, that they might lead us in worship. We pray for our brother who will preach, and ask that you would give him courage and confidence. Help him to see the truth of Christ and to exalt him for us, that we might delight in his name. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
For our time of confession today, I'm going to be in Genesis 19. I'll read verses 15 and 16. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, and take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered, so the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. Notice two things in these verses. First, notice Lot's response to the warning of the angels that the city would be destroyed. It says in verse 16, he lingered, or other translations say he hesitated. Lot didn't want to believe sin was dangerous because sin had become his home. It had become his comfort, his solace. And just as it had become easy for Lot to justify living in and around sin, so it can become easy for us to justify, to excuse, to ignore, to linger in sin. Because it's comfortable. Even when we know it will end in our death and destruction. But secondly, notice here God's mercy. While Lot hesitated, he hesitated from running from the sin that would have destroyed him, that would have destroyed his whole family. It says the angels pulled them out because the Lord was merciful. The sad reality is that left to ourselves, we would never leave our sin because it's easy and it's comfortable. But thank God for his mercy who snatches us, Zachariah says, like a burning stick pulled from the fire. Are you hesitating this evening? Are you lingering in sin? hesitating, turning from that sin that would ruin you and turning towards the Christ who is your safety. Spurgeon says, let not the doctrine that you unaided can do nothing make you sleep, but let it be a prick in your side to drive you with an awful earnestness to Israel's strong helper. Let's pray and confess our sins now. Lord, we come this evening and we do acknowledge the awfulness of sin. And we acknowledge the awfulness of sin, not as as onlookers, as spectators, but as participants, Lord. It is our sin that drove you to the cross. We thank you for your mercy that rescued us in our sin when we were complacent and blind to the destruction of sin, to the evil it it brings to our own lives and to the eyes of others and the lives of others. Lord, you intervened 
You rescued us, just like the angels rescued Lot and his family, pulled them from the destruction. So you sent your spirit to pull us from our own destruction. Lord, we thank you for this, your incredible mercy towards us. Lord, we pray that you would give us a, a sensitivity and a brokenness for sin. We read later on that Lot was, was tortured by the sinful deeds that he witnessed around him every day. Lord, may that be our response to sin in our own life and to the sin around us. Lord, may we not be comfortable and hospitable to sin. May we acknowledge it as the awful evil that it is. And having acknowledged it, Lord, may we confess it to you and find mercy in the shadow of the cross. We thank you that there is mercy for all in that shadow. I pray that there would be no one this evening so burdened, so lost in their sin that they would avoid simply coming to the cross and confessing their sins. Acknowledging once again that it is nothing in us no reason within us that we find forgiveness, but all because of the righteousness, all because of the perfect, spotless blood of the Lamb that we have mercy and forgiveness. I pray that we would all find freedom in this place this evening. We pray in your name. Amen. We have the opportunity now to um, give back. Out of the grace we have received, I'll call the ushers forward now, um, as we have received such incredible undeserved grace from God. Um, we have the opportunity to give back, and we pray that God would use that for the advance of his kingdom. Let's pray and commit our tithes to him. Lord, out of the great grace we have received, I pray that we would be people of glad and generous and cheerful hearts. Lord, uh, I pray that there would be no threat of anxiety or worry. As far as your provision goes, you have been faithful to us uh, every step of the way. Uh, we even think of, of Israel as they wandered through the desert and, and not um, one sandal wore out because you protected and you uh, provided for them. So help us this evening. Help us to give gladly and generously as the Lord lays it up in our hearts, and may you receive the glory and the praise. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.
Lord, we sang earlier, come and worship, come and worship Christ, the newborn king. I pray that with the help of your spirit this evening, that you would help us to, to come in freeness and fullness to worship you. Lord, there are many distractions and discouragements and anxieties present this evening. There are some that we have acknowledged to others. There are some that are in our hearts that others don't know about, but you know about, Lord. We thank you that you are well aware of the, the secret trials and sufferings of our hearts. Indeed, you were a man of sorrows, a man who 
is familiar with grief. We thank you that you are a good shepherd for the sheep who perhaps are straying, uh, perhaps have lost sight of the light and glory of the face of Jesus Christ and have um, wandered away. And we pray for thee this, these this evening. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come as the, as the comforter, as the teacher, as the guide, as the rescuer. And that you would pull these back from the brink of destruction, that you would rescue them. That you would bring them back to the, the fullness of joy that can only be had with the person of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you would help us to, um, that you would tune our hearts this evening to sing your praise. That as we hear your word that we would be able to rejoice in its truth, rejoice in the fact that it is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We live in a culture where everything is always updating, where the, the old is made redundant and the, and the new is, is what we need to buy and be excited about, Lord. But the, the truths that we read in your word are forever firm. They will never need to be updated. They will never be changed. There will never be some new information that comes along and renders it invalid. We can trust it. We can build our lives on it. And I pray that we would be those who not only acknowledge its truth, but rejoice in its truth. That we would taste and see that you were good. And not just talk about it in an abstract sense. We pray for your servant Alex as he brings us the word this evening. That you would give him freedom and joy as he delivers it. We pray that you would um, be working as the word is delivered. The word is powerful. Sharper than any two-edged sword. And so again, we pray, Spirit, that you would take the word, even though it may be offered in weakness, and that it would drive home into our hearts. That if there is sin that needs to be exposed and confessed, that you would reveal that. That if there are promises that we need to cling to that will revive and restore us, that you would reveal that. Lord, there are many needs present this evening, and you are aware of them all. And we thank you for the powerful quickness of the word that can go back and forth and, and be the medicine and the remedy that is needed. We thank you most of all this evening for the, the glory of the person of Christ in whom we see the Father. And we pray that we would rejoice in him this evening. We pray that he would not just be a name on our lips, Lord, but that he would truly be our all. That as that hymn goes, that even though goods and kindred may go, our family and friends, our health, our property, even if it all goes, that we would still be rich men and women this evening, having in our possession that pearl of greatest price. 
Jesus Christ, who is the King of Kings. Lord, I pray you would soften our hearts this evening, that we would be able to receive him. We do want to pray specifically this evening for uh, the Breakspear family. We do pray for Maureen and Dan as um, they walk through these waters of uncertainty and trial. We pray that you would be a close comfort in this time and that you would be a close convictor in this time. Lord, we pray where there is perhaps hardness of heart that there would be a softness as rain falls upon hard soil and it is softened. Lord, we pray that you would intervene, that you would bring um, uh, a restoration of physical health, Lord, but more importantly, a, a bringer of new life. So we entrust them to you, Lord. We pray now that you would meet with us as we um, are encouraged in the word together. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Your God is. 
If you have a Bible, you can turn to Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to wrap up our Advent series here, uh, focusing on verse 7, but I'm going to read from verses 2 to verse 7. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor that you have broken is on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior and battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it. With justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word that you have preserved for us, that we might see and hear of all that you have done. We pray that your spirit would now give insight and grant us the faith to receive it and obey it. In Jesus' name, amen. This week I want to focus on verse 7 and discuss the nature of the king and his kingdom. Uh, in biblical theology, um, one of the central themes is the kingdom of God. And we might say more specifically, the, uh, one of the central um, points to the narrative of Scripture is the establishment of God's kingdom. Uh, there certainly is an arc to history. Uh, and history is not you know, heading in an aimless direction randomly, but history is being shaped and guided by an eternal God to a specific end, and that is his kingdom. We read in the book of Revelation, chapter 11, verse 15, the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. This is the end of history, or, or we would say the beginning of history in one sense. The kingdom of the world and the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ becoming one. And the story of scripture is, we could say, is one of uh, man rejecting God's rule and his reign. And yet God making a plan to one day reestablish his reign in the world. To reestablish his rule in the world. Which is uh, the foundation for all peace and prosperity. And the entire Old Testament is God 
you know, revealing progressively his plan to do this. And um, we come to one portion of the Old Testament where he makes a covenant with David and he reveals to not only David but to his people through his word that part of his plan for reordering the entire cosmos is by establishing a line of David and his throne, which is his rule forever and ever. Um, God's remedy for the world has always been the reestablishment of his kingdom. We read in 2 Samuel chapter 7 about the nature of this kingdom and God's promises. Um, moreover, it says in 2 Samuel 7, 11, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Now remember, David had it in his heart to build the Lord a house. He said, look, here I am dwelling in a house of cedar and the, and the Lord is, you know, his spirit dwells in a tent. Like, this isn't okay. Something's wrong. And he, lay, he, he decides, you know, I'm going to build the Lord a house. And the Lord says, no, 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 no. Listen, I don't, I don't dwell in houses made by men, right? I don't need you to build me a house. Uh, in other words, the plans and the purpose of the world don't revolve around you and your desires. Um, as we see in this text in Isaiah 9, the zeal of the Lord is what matters, which brings about his plans and purposes. So he says, no, I'm going to build Make you a house, that is, typically, your family. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up for your offspring after you, one who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be to him a father and he will be to me a son. Uh, this was not David's immediate son. This was a prophecy ultimately fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. We meet in Matthew chapter 1 in the genealogy, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. This is why he was born to Joseph. This is why he was born uh, in the city of David. Luke chapter 1, verse 31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. So Jesus is the offspring that God promised to David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. To say that Jesus Christ is a son of David and a son of Abraham, as Matthew does, is not only to link his genealogy to them, that is his bloodline, but to demonstrate the more important connection with them is that he is the one to inherit the promises made to them. Uh, his connection with Abraham and his connection with David as their son went far beyond any bloodline. It's not less than that, but it's more than that. To say that, that Jesus Christ is the one to whom the promises made to David and Abraham will ultimately be fulfilled through. 
And those promises included a family through whom the world would be blessed and a ruler through whom an eternal kingdom uh, would be established. We read further in Scripture um, that all those who are united to Jesus by faith are themselves being built into this house. That the plan was never actually to build another structure, another physical temple, as it were, but to build a people. 1 Peter 2.5, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices accepted to God through Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2.20 picks up on this idea as well. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, that is through faith, union with Christ, you, that is believers, also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So God's purpose was never to remain in a tent, was not even to remain in a temple uh, built by human hands, but he was going to build a house, he was going to build a temple where Spirit dwells, and that was a living temple. And Jesus is a cornerstone of that, and through faith in him, we participate in that. This is why this is how we get the fulfillment of the covenantal refrain over and over in the Old Testament, I will be their God and they will be my people. Uh, God's plan has always been that he would walk amongst his people, that he would dwell with his people. I will dwell with them, he says. I will be their God they will be my people. That's what's happening in Revelation chapter 11 that I began this sermon speaking to you of. The kingdom of the world, the kingdom of of our Lord and of his Christ, have become one. So this has always been God's plan to establish his kingdom, to establish his rule in the world, to save and redeem a people who willingly submit to his rule, who reflect his rule to the world. And we read in Isaiah, we see in the Gospels, this is fulfilled, that that's going to happen through a child who Jesus Christ ultimately is. I want to make three observations about the nature of this kingdom from this text. Uh, first, I want to talk about the eternality of the kingdom. Then I want to talk about the foundational character of the kingdom. And lastly, the builder of the kingdom. To begin the eternality of the kingdom, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. He says that he will uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The point is this, that all kingdoms rise and all kingdoms fall, but the kingdom of God will remain forever and ever. One of the central points of the gospel narrative surrounding Christ's birth is the contrast between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of men. And we see this in a variety of ways. Um, but one of the ways that we can think about this, looking back throughout human history, is where is Herod? Um, what is Egypt? Where are the Romans? And the answer is nowhere. And yet, 
this child outlives and outlasts all of them. There's a reason why we read about the slaughter of the innocents. We see in this man's futile uh, outrage against the Son of God. The lengths to which man will go to maintain the illusion of his autonomous rule in this world. The depths of wickedness that we will descend to in order to protect and preserve our autonomy from God. Our perceived right to determine for ourselves what is true and what is good. We are willing to sacrifice anyone and anything else to commit such gross crimes. And yet, God preserves his son. One of the fundamental characteristics of the kingdom of God that we are reminded about, especially at this time, is that it is absolutely eternal. Isaiah prophesies the government or rule of this king, of this child, will have no end. It will be established and upheld from this time forth and forevermore. The eternal kingdom is always what God's people long for. We can look at a variety of texts, but Hebrews 11, 9 to 10 is one. Uh, we, we read about Abraham, that by faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder was God. Now, there's so much that we could say about this passage, but we want to observe that the patriarchs, the fathers, were always, even in their day, looking for more than the promised land. Not less. He went there. He went to the promised land. God really did make a land promised to them, and they went there. But notice that he lived in the land of promise as if in a foreign land. It'd be like being given your house, being sold a house, and you have the full ownership of it, and yet you live there and you never unpack your bags. You're always ready to go. You act as though you're a renter, even though you're an owner. Why? Because you're anticipating something else. So you know, although this is yours, that what you're waiting for, what you're hoping for, what you're looking for is something different, that you have not yet arrived. You are passing through. And so God's promise to his people was not less than, but it was always more than a dusty corner of the Middle East. And this is what people miss. It says that the patriarchs themselves lived in the land of promise. That is, they received what they were promised as if they were in a foreign land, living in tents. That is, structures that were non-permanent. Why would they not unpack their bags? Why would they not put down foundations? Why would they not build Walls. Why would you not create a more secure environment in a dangerous world? Because they knew this was not permanent. And it says explicitly the reason for this in Hebrews 11.10. He was looking 
forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. The patriarchs themselves were looking forward to the kingdom of God. They were looking to a different city. They knew that even when they, they walked into the land of promise, that there was something better, there was something more. We read in Romans 4.13, the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. The promise to Abraham and his offspring that they would be heirs of Canaan? The world. So Paul tells us, and the writers of Hebrews tells us, that the patriarchs, Abraham, that Isaac and Jacob, always were looking forward to the kingdom of God. It's not that they didn't receive an actual promise of land. It's that, they, that, that God did promise that and he gave it to them and it was typological of something better. And they always knew that. Is the point I'm trying to drive home. This isn't a later interpretation. This isn't us coming along and saying, you know, on the other side of things, that no, we know now that God actually meant something else. And people will respond and say, how would have Abraham and Isaac interpreted his promise? And the Bible tells us how they interpreted the promise of the land. They interpreted the promise of the land, this corner in the Middle East, to mean not only are you going to get this, but one day your offspring will inherit everything. And this makes sense because God was never just coming for a fraction of the earth. God is the creator of all things and he is the redeemer of all things. And his kingdom will be over all. People talk about we're going to rebuild a temple and we're going to reclaim the land in the middle. It's like, what a horribly small picture of reality. On top of just being wrong, and that's not what the Bible teaches anywhere. What a hor like as if God simply wants, you know, 40 square miles. It's all his. And he wants all of it. And he will take it. A couple of observations. Entrance into this kingdom is through faith. Not through an endless bureaucracy and series of applications. That's how you get to this kingdom, right? We're, I'm, I'm almost a Barbados citizen. And it's actually been pretty smooth sailing. But there's so many bureaucratic hoops you have to go through. And Rebecca, you know, I think she's still just a permanent resident. You know, she's not even a citizen here because of the things you have to do. But you can, as somebody who wasn't born in the place, apply and pay your fees and go through the processes and be a part of this country. Not so with the kingdom of God. It doesn't happen through petition. It doesn't happen by money. It doesn't happen by conquest. It's not like Islam. This kingdom is established by the king and you become a citizen by faith in the Son. That's it. There's one way into this kingdom. And it's actually open and available to absolutely everyone. But there's only one way. And that is by surrendering. That is by laying down your arms. That is by faith 
and repentance and the anointed one, the Messiah, and that is the Son. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. The nations rage, and yet they do so in vain, and there is an opportunity, and there's only one opportunity, but it's available to everyone. You embrace the Son. Entrance into this kingdom is through faith, which on one hand is exclusive because there's only one way, but in another way it's universal in the sense that he makes it available to everyone. That the gospel offer goes out to all the world, the rich and the poor, the people of means, the people in connections and no connections, this race, that race, whatever background, it doesn't matter who you are, if you live and breathe, the offer of the gospel and entrance into this kingdom is available to you. And it was purchased at the great precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Citizenship was purchased by him. His, establishes, his, his kingdom is established in his blood and is offered to everyone. Second observation I want to make from this text and others is that this ought to shape us with a profound sense of gratitude. This is the way the scripture talks about the way we ought to respond to the fact that the kingdom is eternal. Hebrews 12, 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Notice the connection between gratitude and worship. And this makes sense because the opposite of gratitude, uh, to, to fail to be grateful, is often worrying, entitlement. And these are the antithesis to worship. Whereas if you live a life of constant gratitude, your mind and your, your heart are free to actually focus on God and offer up worship. Let us be grateful receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Every kingdom can be shaken. Every kingdom but this kingdom can be shaken. As stable as things seem, and as much peace and prosperity as we have enjoyed, everything can and does end. All of the empires that rose and fall, you, 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 you don't even know who the Babylonians are. You don't know the Assyrians. You don't even know the Egyptians. I mean, I know some Egyptians. But as far as an empire, you don't know them. Even when we think about the, the world as it is today, um, what, you know, Germany almost took over the world. You know, they were very close. And then that didn't happen. That's only like 80 years ago. Communist Russia, my parents grew up, um, you know, it was like people thought about nuclear war, you know. If you're over 60, it's like the, this was part of your existence. You remember when people talked like this. Where's, where's you know, where's the communist empire? Uh, China even is facing massive demographic issues, right? And ec economic issues. Even the United States and Canada, the West itself. Every, so many things in the world are changing that we just thought were normal, like secure and stable forever in a very short period of time. And yet, the kingdom of God lasts forever. Of its increase, there is no end. 
And when you're dead and when I'm dead, when everyone we know is dead, the kingdom of God is still going to continue. And the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of the Lord and of his Christ will one day be one. Absolutely certain of that. So the kingdom that we read about in Isaiah 9-7 is an eternal kingdom. The kingdom won't just outlast all others. That is one distinct feature of it. But it will be of an entirely different substance. Which brings me to my second point about the character of this kingdom. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The simple fact is is that this kingdom is that this kingdom will reflect perfectly its king. What is the fundamental ingredient of a culture or of a kingdom? Is it economic? Um, You know, material prosperity? Is it military dominance and protection? No, the fundamental ingredient of a culture is its character, its values, its its principles. And this character is a reflection of its worship, and this worship is a reflection of its God. This is why we see our country crumbling, because you can't have a cohesive social unit without shared worship. You can't. And the reason it could have felt like that for a long time is because the dominant worship was Christian. You know? And so there's a lot of shared values and principles at an institutional level, at a legal level. Right? Uh, But as that erodes, we realize that geography itself is not enough to make a country, to have a shared culture. What is the character of this king and his kingdom? Isaiah tells us that it is one of justice and righteousness. And the fruit of this justice and righteousness is peace. Isaiah says that the kingdom will be established and upheld, the two words he uses, with justice and righteousness. This is a way of saying that justice and righteousness will be the foundation and the fundamental character of this kingdom. We started a classical school like four years ago, right? Classical Christian school. And so what that means is um, that as far as our pedagogy goes, uh, we've adopted what's been called a classical model because we think that this generally aligns with a Christian view of education, of what a human is and how they learn and how they develop. We think these things go hand in hand. And Christians thought this way in the medieval period, and they picked up these principles. And actually until... Quite recently, last century, uh, most people in the West were educated this way, right? So, Kortha Classical Christian School. But you would be wrong to think that we all love the Greeks. Uh, one of the, uh, Ryland actually went to speak at a Ezra Institute um, conference last year, or the year before, I forget when. And he said that one thing that the organizers thanked him for was essentially, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, Thanks for not, you know, oogling over the Greeks. Because you get that. You get that in the education world. The word, you know, 
the Greeks thought this way and that way, and there's some good stuff to pick up on. There's some genius people and this and that. It was also a severely ungodly and depraved culture. You know, recently, I don't know where this came from, but there's like this trend online about all men thinking about Rome. I have no idea where this started. Um, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't know exactly what it refers to, but the general idea is that apparently, if guys are honest, they think about the Roman Empire a lot. I don't know how true that is. I've never really thought about that. Uh, if you do, you need to learn a little bit more. Uh, there's a lot. I mean, maybe you watched Gladiator and thought that that was good, right? Uh, the Roman culture for the majority of the people was a terribly barbaric place, as with the rest of the world. Where there's some great uh, architectural uh, features, where there are even some impressive legal features, was there a kind of peace and prosperity that characterized, that distinguished them? Was there a level of civilization? Sure, compared to the world, sure, in some ways. Uh, but don't get it wrong, the nature and the character of all of those kingdoms was not a good place. Not a good place. Um, you know, Tom Holland talks about the fact that we actually value victims as an entirely novel concept. Uh, you know, today it, you, you, it's, it's, it's a race to be the biggest victim. And the reason for that is because victims are at the top of the moral hierarchy. You are inherently justified by being a victim. So if you can identify yourself as one, and the best way to do that is identify yourself as part of the aggrieved, several aggrieved classes, well, then you are inherently justified. Not because of your works, not because of your character, but because your identification is a victim. Well, this is an entirely absurd claim to make in any world except the Christian one. Because guess what people think about victims? Nothing. If you're in Rome and you say, that's not fair, you know who cares? No one. Even, even you, knew, you read about the Spartans. You know, there's a movie that was made about them kind of glorifying their, their you know, their giftedness militarily, but barbaric. They would enslave other cultures. They would show up once a year and just slaughter a bunch of them to keep them on their toes. They would send their children up away, you know, they're, they're 12 years old or whatever, to go on these hunts of other people, just murdering innocent people. Like, this is, this is the world apart from Christ. This is what the Bible tells us. What happens when everyone does what is right in their own eyes, and there is no king. The problem with Israel is not that they wanted a king, but that they wanted a king other than God, and they wanted a king like the nations. What is the king that they asked for? They asked for one who was tall and handsome. They looked around at the other nations. They said, we want to have a king like them. And then what happens? You become like them. But we have a different king. And this is why ultimately God has to be the king of his people. Because the character of the kingdom will reflect the king. And in the, in the, in the case of the kingdom of God, it is characterized by justice and righteousness. This is a word pair um, that we could delve quite deeply into. But it's used repeatedly in Isaiah to describe the just and righteous character of God. Isaiah 5.16 but the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice, and the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. 
In short, justice and righteousness as a word pair means to treat people as they deserve. That's what it means. The people of God who ought to have reflected this character of God did not. Isaiah 5, 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. One of God's main indictments against his people that he sends Isaiah to rebuke them for is their absolute failure to display the justice and righteousness of God. The moral corruption and rot that came to characterize them, which means that they did not reflect the God that they claimed to worship and showed themselves to be hypocrites. They did not treat people as they deserved. They did them wrong instead of good. What Isaiah says in chapter 9, verse 7, is that the rule of the royal son will be characterized by justice and righteousness. This king will perfectly embody the very character of God. And the fruit of this righteous rule will be an everlasting peace. This is why the, the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, could not last. Because lasting peace is built upon true justice and righteousness. Wickedness can never result in peace. Never. Idolatry can never result in peace. Can you enjoy, on an individual level, we know this to be true, can we enjoy a measure of peace and prosperity even in rejecting God? Yes, but only for a time. Can a nation, can a family enjoy a measure of peace and prosperity even though they reject the true and living God? Yes, but only for a time. True and lasting peace is built upon true and lasting justice and righteousness. And only this, this can only come through the lasting rule of a just and righteous king. You cannot have the fruit without the root. The root. Lasting and eternal peace can only come through submission to this king. So what Isaiah is prophesying and the gospels are saying are fulfilled is that this true, this just, and this righteous king has come in the Lord Jesus Christ and that he has come to establish his kingdom and the foundations of this kingdom are not the blood of his enemies, but his own blood. And that is the fundamental difference about this kingdom. Every other empire is built on a stack of bodies. And this empire is built on one. His own. Lastly, we can rest in the fact that God is the one ultimately who is building his kingdom. So this is an eternal kingdom that will last forever. It is founded upon justice and righteousness as its character. It perfectly reflects the king. But how do we know this is going to come to pass? What is the um, driving force behind this? And Isaiah closes with this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The very simple meditation for us is to take heart to have hope that the 
motivation for this and the driving force is not us, but is in fact God. The zeal of the Lord is his passionate commitment. Hebrews 11.10 brings out the idea that God is a builder. It says he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And this is what we read in the gospel accounts. There's no other accounting for the Lord Jesus Christ, his birth into this world, a miraculous birth, his preservation through life, his substitutionary death, and his resurrection. There's no other explanation behind this except that God is the one who did this, that God is the one who ordained this, that God is the one who shaped all of human history towards this end. We also see that God's passionate commitment, not just his stoic, uh, you know, deterministic attitude. God's providence is built upon his, it's the outworking of his character. And so how do we know that this is going to come to pass? Because God's passionately committed to this. There's one simple application here. We can take heart because the eternal purposes of God and our eternal good are one in Christ. You don't know that the motivations of anyone else are ultimately for your good. You don't know that our leaders have our best interests at heart. You don't know that their motivations for what they do and our good are one, that they're aligned. But what we know about the fact that the zeal of the Lord of hosts is the one who's building his kingdom, ultimately responsible for the building of his kingdom, is that The highest aim of God, which is his glory, and our greatest good are perfectly aligned. That God will be glorified on the earth, that he will exalt his son, that he will build his kingdom. And this is the best possible outcome for us. I just thought about that this week and was thinking that we can't say this about anyone else, but we know that God does all things for his glory And that his kingdom is the outworking of his glory. And his kingdom is the best thing that we could possibly imagine. The purposes of God are perfectly aligned with our greatest good. And that is an absolutely staggering thing. And at Christmas, as we think about the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ, we think about how these purposes cannot be thwarted. They will come to pass. The king and his kingdom have come and he shall reign forever and ever. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you in Jesus' name and we thank you for your word, which is truth. We thank you that you have preserved your word. We thank you that you have established your kingdom that you have sent the king. We pray that you would help us to take heart even in dark times. In Jesus' name, amen.